welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came home every day from there. And ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Jerry Springer! Oh, hey. Oh. Oh, you are making me well up. That is. And wait a second. What was this high voice? Well, Where's Megan? You know, I'm she's sure as I like to know the answer to that, but she's not here. And so I, I did she that to try to say. I'm going to hold for one second because I want to talk about Megan Hills and answer your question first. Let's we have give, her mic here. She's supposed to be here. That's what I think, too. But first of all, let's give ourselves a round of applause because this is the first night we're live on the Internet. All right. Wait. This is live? This is now live. So all, those, well, no, I told Mickey I'm in New York. That's a bit of a problem. I can't, I can't help you on that. Yeah. Yeah, because it, we it are. It appears live. to be live. It, appe it really appears live? to be live. But to Mickey, it, oh. no, but we uh, now have a listen live button on at jerryspringer.com. Yes. So if you're listening to this uh, in an archived episode, you've been to the website, probably saw that. But anyway, we are now uh, live on uh, the internets, as W. Bush would say. But I got to tell you something. Uh, I'm going to lay this uh, at your doorstep. Because this is not the Gene Galvin podcast, it's the Jerry Springer podcast. You are the owner and operator of this podcast. I can't figure out how you negotiate. you're doing all the talking? Well, that's a fair question. <laughs> I'm paid by the word. <laughs> I'm trying to get it. No, go ahead. Donald Trump can negotiate a contract. Yes. You negotiated with Megan Hills and me. And Megan Hills, we've been doing this for what, about nine, ten months, eleven months or so, ten months? Yeah, and she said and she's always on vacation. You tell me, where is Megan Hills? Well, I'm, I'm, I want to know. She doesn't get those vacation days. I know we that only I have, do it once a week. Right. Why would you have to take a vacation? I have not ever taken a day of vacation in my life, and you're a pretty hardworking. You person have to too. have a job to take a vacation. No, fair from. point. Fair point. What What are you gonna? What That's you, fair. What are you going to vacate from? Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to get to a dignified retirement. Yeah. But I got to tell you something. <laughs> I spent the day tracking Megan Hills. And I got to tell you, I eventually talked to some cruise line. What? And I think they've arranged with the captain of the boat, who I don't know. It's called to a do ship. A ship. It's a cruise. It's not a boat. Uh, well, a ship. Ship to shore radio. And it's possible we have Megan Hills on somewhere near Belize. Megan well, Hill. That's what I'm. Let's check it out. Megan, are you there? I sure am, Gene. How's it going? Isn't that something? Uh, uh, Megan, what, what, what do you, you. We do a podcast on Tuesday nights. What are you doing? Where are you? You're on your way to Belize? She's drinking. Well, see, it's a. She <laughs> it's shipped to shore radio. I mean, it's probably it's bouncing off satellites. Wait a second. Megan, can you hear us? I think you're going to something to hear me. Well, now we can. So explain yourself, please. We don't understand how you got these vacation days. <laughs> I'm an expert negotiator, Gene. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. You know what? I bet you it's working just fine. But because yeah, she doesn't have an answer, <laughs> she's pretending the phone's breaking yeah, she's up. There going, blah, blah, That's the old blah, story. Blah, blah, blah. Well, honey, I'm at, I'll be back <laughs> tonight. Love right. you. All right, Megan, here's the deal. Uh, we will start another episode in about 40 minutes and we expect you here thank you very much 
adorable. <laughs> yeah, good night. Hey, have a great time. Yeah, have a drink for us, Megan. All right, bye bye. So this was true. This is not a joke. She's really no. She that was a ship to shore radio signal, and obviously you mean the sucked, captain. Letter the call? captain was standing there, probably at some dials or something. Can you imagine that, that poor happen? captain? She comes up. This woman he doesn't know comes up. I need to call Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, that's what I would say. Yeah, that that's, that's not believable. Hey, by the way, um, and we've been friends for a long time, but I don't know if I've ever told you this, but about, <laughs> I don't remember when it was, but what? my first wife, Bonnie, and I were watching uh, some TV at home, at our home, yeah. and I hear a door knock. And I look outside, it's nighttime, and I see nothing. Nothing, nobody. And I'm looking around, looking around. I figure that's probably some teenagers or something goofing on us. And I looked down and I did see a snail. I don't don't want that here. And I picked it up and gave it a good toss way out into the yard, went back in. Bonnie says, what happened? Blah, blah, blah. Nobody there. Three years later, bizarre, the door knock, a door knock. I go down and open the door, look outside, Jerry, nobody there. And then I looked down and saw a snail, and the snail says, what the hell are you doing that for? All I wanted to do was use your phone. My car broke down. <laughs> this is our first. You get it first, three years later. I, uh, exactly. Snails hooking that long to get back. This is our first I mean, live on. podcast, and that's what you got? <laughs> that's what you got? So you go to the internet and it says top 10 jokes and that was like number four. I don't know, Jerry. Hey, uh, I've been married 42 years and I, and I got to tell you that, you know, uh, God love Mickey, but she always likes to talk after sex. Really? Yeah. Like when you have like an intimate moment? I mean, that, yeah. is that what you're talking about? Yeah, oh, like last night she called me from Cleveland. <laughs> we... Oh my God. Oh, my God. Hey, by the way. If you missed the joke this time, you can hear it next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell it every yeah. week. Every Somebody wrote week. an article about this podcast, and they said that they do lame-ass jokes and just beat them into the ground. Oh. Beat them yeah. down. Yeah. Hey, it's a true story. Uh, see, no one believes anything anymore, but hey, true story. So I got a phone call the other day from a reporter. Not going to say where, what paper, not going to say the celebrity. The reporter says, I'm trying to get in touch with Jerry Springer. And they kind of know I'm the pool boy at the Springer household. So they're going to come through me to try to get to Jerry. So uh, she said, let me tell you what it's about. And she tells me that she is needs to talk to you to get some quotes about somebody who is a celebrity, a known celebrity, uh, for an obituary. Celebrity died? No. I said, is it, is it, I knew who the celebrity was, and I said, is that person dead? No, no. Is that person sick? No. No, I, I am hired to do preparatory obituaries oh. for significant people. <laughs> and I, so I was wondering, has anybody called you to get comments about me for my obituary, my preparatory? The assumption is that seven people would care. That's what I'm thinking. And then mean, I was so wondering. So you're worried about what your obituary is? No, I'm say. not at all worried yeah. about it. I just think it's pretty creepy that somebody's. Yeah, but really, that obituary. is. But I guess that's true. 
God forbid, some celebrity dies, you know, they don't suddenly start doing the research. They got to go on the air right yeah. away, particularly in this era of the social media. So I'm just, I can imagine what mine will be. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I was wondering oh. if you had ever but heard it, that anybody was. But here it's, on yeah, one of you. Uh, for those of you here from Kentucky, uh, you're going to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, if you're old enough to know what that joke is, that's a good joke. Now, that's a good one. Oh, yeah, it'll be prominently mentioned. <laughs> yeah. And then the final line says, oh, and you also had a TV show. <laughs> yeah. And, and didn't, uh, didn't I hear once or didn't somebody tell me that there is a website where oh, your obituary true. actually is already? No, this, this, this is true, and it... It was hard. I mean, it's scary and it's wrong. Uh, some of you may know about. It. I'm not going to tell you what the web, the name of it is. No, because it's where they do f fake headlines, fake deaths, and they take celebrities and they suddenly do a story about how you were killed or died. And uh, this was last year, and they did one that I had been uh, killed in a, a car crash on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and they described the whole thing, how I was pulled from the car and all that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a hoax. The point is, some family member sees it, and, you know, we started getting calls at the show. And then I'm saying, oh, well, you know, what if, you know, Katie, make it whatever, someone sees us. So, you know, I immediately called home, and Mickey didn't seem bothered by it, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <all> right, right. <laughs> no. <laughs> too upset. But, yeah, there is that. They, they do that. You know, when I found out about it, and then I saw that they do other far more famous celebrities than me, and, uh, but they, they, and the story is in such detail. You read it, you don't, do not think this is a joke. They quote the police officer at the scene, and, uh, you know, they're getting in touch with the family and all that. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was, but now I know, that's why I know what they're going to say in my obituary. <laughs> You've already seen it. That's why I'm trying to keep living, because it's, it's going to be ugly when I go. <laughs> it's going to be ugly. Hey, by the way, in a little bit, we're going to hear uh, Honey in Houston, which is a great, uh, greater Cincinnati area folk group. And uh, Jerry, by the way, I want to tease this for a second, uh, just came back uh, probably within a number of hours ago from Iowa, where the Iowa uh, caucus just happened. Now, if you're listening to this on an archived uh, episode, it'll, you know, that will have passed uh, some time ago. Uh, if you're listening live, it's going to be, he has some, I think, very germane comments about what he saw. But before we go there, I wanted to mention something else. I spent some time today, Jerry, on the phone with the people from the Center for Cuban Studies. Yeah. And this is an organization out of New York City, and they're top-notch, and they are arranging our podcast trip to Cuba in mid-May. So we're going to Cuba with uh, the the co-host, Megan Hills, uh, if, if she's got to check her vacation schedule. But uh, she will be with us. Uh, and Casey Campbell, our music coordinator, is going to go with guitar and do some performing down there. And we're going to record some people from Cuba who are part of a music movement called Nueva Trova. And there's a great uh, documentary out right now called The, the Poet, uh, of Poet of Havana, and it's outstanding. Carlos Varela, and we're hoping through our contacts at the Center for Cuban Studies to be able to get access to him. Silvio Rodriguez, who is another member and uh, older guy who's part of the Nueva Trova movement. In talking to them, and this is what I wanted to bring up to you, they... We are going as a cultural exchange. Casey will be our representative of our music, 
he'll sing some songs, uh, labor songs, worker songs, some of his own music. We've told and, the Cuban government that I'm part of a cultural exchange. That's what I wanted to... <laughs> That's what I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Oh. That, oh. Is that freaking unbelievable? Jerry Springer is what we take to Cuba from yeah. America. Oh, this, if we this, say, <clears throat> here's America. If this doesn't improve relations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this And you know, I asked the head woman at the Center for Cuban Studies if she thought that Jerry Springer would be known, would even be known down no, there. It, it, the truth is, unless they can sneak it on satellite. Well, here's what they told me. This is what I learned. I, I wondered that. They, it will not be on the channel lineup in Cuba because that's all Cuban television. So right. that would be like watching uh, public broadcasting. It's take all the commercial stations out. But the people in Cuba who go somewhere, and I don't think this is hard to do. I don't think they're barred from doing this. And they buy simply an antenna, not a cable box, but an antenna, probably like our basic that it went to, and I'm not real into all this, but you can get an antenna at home and pick up the over-the-air broadcast channels. Am I right? I'm seeing yeah. some heads nod yes. So those people there who have that, Miami's 90 miles away. So there oh, will yeah. be some people, she believes, who know who you are, and I think oh. she will join me in saying that's not to our advantage. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It oh. is. What, we, what are their prisons like? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, this is not going to be good. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure I can go. I, <laughs> anyway, I think yeah, that's so we'll going to be... It will we're be we're really exciting. excited about yeah, that. I, yeah, I we're that very excited. Cool. We think that we're going to bring back material, and with the help of Ambient Studios, David Proust, uh, we will uh, cut that material into some episodes that we think will be pretty interesting. Music is what we're going for, but of course, we're going to see so much stuff and we're going to learn so much about so many things, including political stuff and feelings and um, attitudes. It'll be good. I mean, I'd love to hear the, the folk music or the protest music, if yeah. we can still get some, uh, back in the days of Batista before January 1st of 59. 59. So the people that were protesting the Batista government and then get some of the folk music today if they allow any of the people that are kind of protesting what's going on with in the Castro government. You know, is there any protest going on? But it would be interesting to hear that kind of music uh, because in most societies, you know, whatever the protest is, whatever the anger is, it first you first see it in the music. And uh, it's certainly been part of American history every you know, every bad thing we did, whether it was slavery or whatever, uh, or people, you know, hurting, they first expressed it, whether it was in the cotton fields with the, you know, with, with the songs they sang there or the civil rights movement, the labor movement. Music is, is, is the first way we hear about it, the first communication about it, because it seems less threatening. And uh, so I'd be interesting to see how much of that exists in current Cuba now. And, you know, the impression we get over here in the States is that things are loosening up a little bit in Cuba. Uh, but for those people that we've talked to, friends of ours, family members that have actually been down there, the one thing I think we're going to be amazed by two things. One, the education system is, you know, it's 100% literacy, maybe not 109, whatever, but everybody reads there, you know, and everybody gets health care there. So, I mean, there's some things that 
you know, I'm not suggesting they have freedom or anything else, but there's some things they've done very, very well. And I think we're going to be kind of impressed by that. And, and we are lucky to be working with someone from Cuba who is a musicologist, so to speak, who's going to be uh, our guide. And the, you're yeah. raising, those are great questions. Take it all the way. I'll give you an example of a song that, that was one of the songs of the Revolution of 59 was Juan Tanamera. Popularized in America years ago in the 70s, late 60s, by the Sandpipers. And Pete Seeger did it. A lot of people covered it. And that was a song that preceded, that was in the revolution in Cuba of like 1917. It was an earlier attempt at a revolution. The 59 one really hit and really stuck. Uh, And a lot of controversy as to how and why it stuck. But And we'll probably learn a little bit about that too. There's a phenomenal song, and I encourage people to look it up on YouTube, called William Tell, like the William Tell Overture, like the guy that shoots the apple off the head of his kid, right? Do I have that story right? And William Tell is a song and written by Carlos Varela, and Carlos is the poet of Havana, as he's referred to, and he's the subject of this uh, documentary. And he wrote it, he says in the documentary, in like 10 minutes. And he is the, and Bob Dylan probably did that too on some songs where they just, it just came so fast, the idea, and boom, before he knew it, it was done. That's like me with Save the Union Terminal. (laughs) Yes, right, yeah, it's a long story. (laughs) William Tell is a song about trust and freedom. You You want to shoot the apple off of my head, now it's time for me to be free, and let's try shooting the apple off of your head. And that's the essence of the song, William Tell. And it's a protest song in Cuba about the restrictions that these young Cubans, this is a guy in his 30s or 40s, it appeared to me to be. And so there is a protest movement going on in Cuba today. And this guy is totally Cuban. In the interviews, in the documentaries, I'm not going anywhere. I have friends and family members who got on boats, some died getting across the 90-mile stretch. That ain't me. I'm Cuban straight through, but I have the right to fight for my rights. And it's a very delicate political situation in Cuba with Carlos Varela to be freed up to make his art without really pissing off the government. And that's something, uh, unless they hear this episode and say we can't come into the country now, but this is something we want to kind of explore. It's very cool. Looking forward to it. Hey, wanted to ask you, uh, you were lucky you went to Iowa which, as we're doing this podcast, was last night. And Iowa was, uh, some would say, kind of big as to what happened and what didn't happen. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us uh, what you saw, what you did, and then bottom line question is, what's the takeaway from it as you analyze it? Well, uh, uh, the reason I was there is I'm covering the presidential election uh, for British television, uh, ITV, uh, for their morning show, which is like the Today Show, Good Morning Britain. And so I do reports from America as this in this year as the campaign goes along. So obviously, over the weekend, I was in Iowa, and it was, it's a real education. The flip answer always is, you know, how does Iowa get to start? You know, it is hardly, uh, you know, indicative of the rest of America. Um, I did see one black person there, 
And uh, because we did this show, we did the show from a truck stop diner on Sunday night, which is really Monday morning in England. And the people in the diner, it was packed and the people in the diner were people that were going to show up at the caucuses. And it was funny because the owner of the diner happened to be uh, African-American. And so we got to talking and, you know, he just moved to Iowa a few years ago and he said, I, I like it, but he says, if I want to see a black person, I have to look in the mirror. And, uh, and, and, the, and the reason to tell you is to bring home the notion that Iowa is important because it's the first indication of anybody voting, but it is in no way in either party indicative of where most of America is. Uh, and, for example, on the Republican side, winning the, re, um, the Iowa caucuses uh, does not get you the nomination. Uh, Santorum won it, um, I think, four years ago, and Huckabee four years before that. So, you know, they didn't get on to go on to get the nomination. But having said that, there was a part of it that really, really impressed me because it's really kind of cool, and it's, by the way, it's the reason the polls were wrong. I should say, I won't say that the polls were wrong. I should say that the media only took the bottom line question, you know, the final, the horse race, without looking at the information the pollsters got beforehand. You only got the headline, who's the head in the polls? But they didn't really emphasize, the media just ignored people that had not made up their minds, and how intense people were in their support for the various candidates. And here's what I saw, which was really great. I mean, this is, must have been America in the uh, 1800s. Neighbors, you go to a caucus, and you show up many times. Many of the people were not yet totally certain who they would vote for. But you go to the caucus because it's the right thing to do. And you show up at a caucus, and uh, for example, on the Democratic side, uh, what they do is everyone goes in the room. You got to be there by seven o'clock at night. They shut the doors. You sign in, you know, register. And then each candidate gets a spokesperson up there to speak on behalf of one for Hillary, another for Bernie, another for O'Malley. And then they say, okay. All those for Hillary, you go in this corner. All those for Bernie, you go in that corner, and O'Malley that corner, and this corner, those who are undecided. And so it's not secret. And they're your neighbors and family members, and sometimes a husband will go to one corner, the wife in the other. And then there's a time for you to try to convince someone to come on over. And so they're all talking, but they're talking. And what was neat is... It was so civil, which you can imagine is shocking to me. Uh, but it was a civil discussion. And, and, you know, I would just listen in, and they would be talking, you know, even at the diner that night, the people would be talking about, well, like a, a Sanders voter uh, would say, oh, you got to be for Bernie. And then this young lady came over and said, yeah, but... No, you know, what if he's not going to win the general election or maybe, you know, the, some of those states aren't going to vote. Well. You know, if you don't want a Republican president, you know, come over for Hillary. She's not that much different on the issues and that. And they're discussing, she said, well, okay. And, and then when O'Malley didn't get 15%, they're all talking to the O'Malley people. There was even some gamesmanship that if in a certain room 
you, let's say the Hillary people thought that if O'Malley doesn't get 15%, the second choice of many of the O'Malley delegates would go into the corner with Sanders, they would suddenly send some of the Hillary people over to uh, O'Malley's corner just to make sure that he got the 15% so they wouldn't go over to Sanders. And it went the other way too, by the way. But what it is, it's citizens taking two hours that evening to have serious discussions about where they stood on the issues and, you know, and I was listening on the Republican side. I mean, you know, a lot of people came in there and they said they were for Trump. And, but then you heard others say, you can't really be serious. We can't have Trump. And, and what about this? And what about that? And you actually saw, well, okay, maybe not. And she'd take off the Trump button and go to the other corner. <laughs> that is why the polls were totally off. Because underneath, they didn't, think that so many people would actually make up their minds at the caucus and there was no way there was no way to measure that the polls will be more accurate in new hampshire and on states where you have a primary the reason is when you go to vote in an election when you go into the booth 99% of the people already know you already know who you're going to vote for when you show up at the voting booth I mean, there may be a little indecision, but normally you know who you're voting for. Plus, there's no discussion. In fact, you're not even allowed to have any campaigning uh, within, I don't know, 100 yards, I don't know, but a certain number of feet of the polling place. So there's no discussion. There's no trying to convince someone to come on over. And that becomes fascinating. I mean, it's really how democracy ought to be. I don't know that you could literally do it in, in huge states with, you know, millions and millions of people. So the good news about what they do in Iowa is it forces all the candidates to actually talk to people that have real, real questions. The rest of the country watches it for the two months prior to the Iowa caucuses, so we're all getting educated. So it isn't a horrible thing. And we shouldn't panic because the results of Iowa do not determine who the nominee is ultimately going to be. It could by coincidence, but not because of what happened. Having said that, by the time this is heard, I could turn out to be totally wrong. And then I never said it, and I wasn't here. Uh, I think the pressure next week in New Hampshire is Trump has to win. And uh, he could literally implode if he doesn't. The brand of Trump is I'm a winner. That's all he's selling. He's not going to get elected because he has the most experience. You know, he's not going to get elected because you agree with his ideology. He, does, you know, he doesn't express any ideology. He's Trump, winner, big, the gold standard. So if the gold standard is your brand, you can't get the silver medal. You can't get the bronze. You can't come in second or third. If he loses two in a row... Forget what his psyche will say, how he'll handle that. But all of a sudden, the people that are saying Trump, Trump, Trump are saying, well, why am I saying Trump, Trump, Trump? He can't even beat some of these Republicans that he's been disparaging for all these months. If all these people are losers, how come he's losing to them? But if he doesn't, I think we've seen the beginning of the end of the Trump phenomenon. And by the way, it seems now that the Republican establishment, to the extent that it is an entity, and that's an exaggeration, it's not, 
but people that are concerned. There are a whole lot of Republicans, even though I'm not one, you know, I'll say responsible Republicans. I disagree with them, but I, they're responsible people. They have a different point of view. But they are panicked at the notion of either Trump or um, Cruz leading the ticket. Neither one of them can be elected president of the United States. It can't happen. And I am sure of that. But beyond that, they will hurt the rest of the Republican ticket. So every Republican congressman in America is panicked that, oh my God, what if Cruz is at the head of the ticket? He's too right wing for America. And he'll take down the rest of the ticket. And they don't like him. Trump, they don't hate. They just think he's crazy. So, and they don't want either of them at the head of the ticket. So they're finding their one candidate Probably, and as a Democrat, it doesn't make me happy, but they could very well coalesce around Rubio because Rubio on paper makes sense if you're a Republican. Because assuming for the moment, for the moment that Hillary is the candidate, you have Rubio, all of a sudden age, it's generational. Suddenly Rubio looks good against an older, you know, the older woman. Uh, he's Hispanic that could kind of take some of the, heat off, you know, the position on um, immigration or whatever, you know, he'll get some of the Hispanic vote. It won't be that kind of a thing. And he probably appears to the establishment more, he's a deal maker. He's a politician. Rubio is a politician. And, uh, and he's fairly articulate. So therefore, they wind up with Rubio. On the Democratic side, personally, listening to the speeches last night, everything Bernie Sanders said, I loved. But if you held a gun to my head and say, I got to be right, there's, I can't conceive, otherwise I don't know anything about politics. I can't conceive that America is ready to vote for him for president. And the danger is that if he were the candidate, I'd be reliving George McGovern. And because I, I was there. I Gene, you'll remember this because I think we were together. Yep. It is the Wednesday before the 1972 election. At the University of Cincinnati, 10,000 students and citizens of Cincinnati gathered in the- Fieldhouse. In the Fieldhouse. University of Cincinnati Fieldhouse, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was a city councilman at the time and a McGovern delegate. And, uh, and I got up there to do a little bit of the warm up. And the place was packed. And we had people sitting on the basketball backboard, yep. on, the, on the bars that lead up to that. And you're looking around the room, 10,000 people, Cincinnati, Ohio, screaming for McGovern. And I gave a little warm-up talk, and a couple of other people spoke, and then in comes McGovern, and I am saying, and then I remember Eric uh, Zorchek, uh, he played... Uh, yeah, a folk singer uh, of yeah. that era. Uh, I wish I knew how to be free. Yeah. And, uh, and everyone's singing along, and it, this is like, this is kumbaya. This was wonderful. How can we lose? And of course, we lost 49 states. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried that... Young people, like I was at the time, we're all going to get all excited about Bernie, and we're going to have health care for everybody, and we're going to have free education for everybody, and uh, uh, you know we're going to stick it to the oil companies, and we're going to have some serious uh, do work on climate change and uh, minimum wage up to $15. Every single one of those issues, I 100% agree with. 
But the cost of that, it's going to be expensive. Let's not lie about it. It's going to be very expensive. And is America in the conservative part of the country really ready to vote for that? And understand the consequence. If America is not ready to vote for that, the Republican will be elected president. And even if you think the Republican is a good, decent person, very bright and all that, no Republican president in the first term can afford to veto this Republican Congress. And the Congress will still be Republican because of the way the lines are drawn. Very right wing, very conservative. You know all the pieces of legislation they try to get through. And if there's the only thing that has prevented some of this horrible legislation from becoming law, not the least of which is doing away with Obamacare and all that kind of stuff, is that there's a Democratic president who will veto it. It's the single most important issue of this election, I would argue, that if you are at any way a little bit progressive, and even if once in a while you vote Republican, you can't have a Republican president with this Congress. There are no breaks on it. If it were a responsible Republican Congress, then we could have debates on individual issues. But this is a runaway Congress. And, and that is the danger. And, and so all I say is to my friends who are, you know, my own wife, who's for Bernie, I, I say, you know, go ahead, support her now. Just don't say any, don't damage Hillary because she may be our only hope of stopping uh, having a Republican president. And that is what I take away from the caucuses. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. I'm very, very proud that my uh, podcast partner, Jerry Springer, operates at a level where he's sent off to the Iowa caucuses by a station in London. And I am known for picking up a snail and throwing it out into my yard that comes back three years later. There's the difference. Hey, by the way... Oh, uh, there's the guy with the hearing aid. There's a guy with a hearing aid? What do you see? Who said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, we don't have to go past. No, what? Everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why would no. you? Would, no, he's telling me this is the finest hearing aid money can buy. Really? I say, what kind is it? He said four o'clock. <laughs> um, we have a group. We're very excited about this. Uh, Honey in Houston. And I'll tell you, those of us who do the podcast and the audience that's here, we get to hear what's called a mic check. And these guys were in earlier uh, just jamming a song, a piece of the song, probably one of them that they're going to do. They are a, a group from Greater Cincinnati, and we're going to hear a little bit about them and who the members are and some uh, background about where their original songs come from. And by the way, as they're setting up, we do pride ourselves. We see it as our musical mission to bring on up-and-coming songwriters, not just performers as these guys are, but up-and-coming roots music songwriters. And that's our thing that we do so if occasionally you know if Emmy Lou Harris wants to come in and Jerry by the way gave her the key to the city of Cincinnati one time when he was mayor we'd be happy to have her but we're more likely way way more likely to have folks like this perform so let's hear a song from Honey in Houston <laughs>
That's Honey in Houston, and that's a song called In My Time of Dying, which is actually a traditional song, a public domain song, and it, you guys did a great rendition of that. We have, as members, Lauren uh, Houston on bass, stand-up bass, Heather Turner playing guitar, Mark Kretcher, who's playing mandolin and slide guitar, I think maybe on a, se on a second song, not, not sure, not today, and uh, Daniel Peterson uh, on drums. By the way, their latest album is Barcelona, and uh, they play a lot of places, uh, Rabbit Hash General Store, a fantastic place down in Rabbit Hash, uh, Kentucky, and uh, also at, uh, Cincinnati, at the Cincinnati Zoo, they have a website called honeyandhouston.com. Uh, and by the way, I'm going to jump over to you for a second, Mark, because uh, you are a renowned videographer, are you not? I am, yeah. Yeah. Renowned. Renowned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it just goes to show how this works. Uh, and you, you guys have been touring regionally, correct? And uh, But people do uh, various things, right? Do each of you guys do some other jobs? Uh, and let me start with uh, Lauren. What, what do you do as a so-called day job or a starving artist job? I uh, do IT project management. No kidding. Mm -hmm. so I work in a cube, well, an office all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and who else? What, what, what do you do? I'm a high school Spanish teacher. No kidding. So I'm trying to get on board with your all's Cuba trip. Yeah, <laughs> I heard that. She's and, uh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm an educator by trade, too, so it's Wonderful. good to see a fellow educator up there. And Daniel, how about you? I'm a full-time musician. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Um, now, the second song, you're gonna, did one of you write it? And if so, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, I wrote this song. Um, it's called Rosie, and it's about um, my boyfriend's aunt. She's an incredible woman. She's living in Tampa, Florida, and um, she's just one of those wonderful women that... Um, has a beautiful spirit. She's really carefree, and uh, she inspired this song. All right, so do it for this us, one's please. Called Rosie. Talk of 
Heather, that's a good song. Good Thank job. You. That's very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, could you guys take us out on Irene Goodnight? Absolutely. And this is Jerry Springer here on my left, and he will actually sing a verse if you'll let him. Yes. It's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Listening to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. To jump in that river and Y'all come back now. <laughs>